Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Up to half a million women in Washington, D.C., up to half a million women participating in the Women's March, up to a million women globally in various cities, including Canadian population centers. Jackson Prusco joins us. He's the Washington Bureau Chief of Global News. Jackson, great to have you with us. Give us a bit of a sense of how big this is and how significant this march is. Hi, Roy. Thanks for having me on. Now, to put this all in context for you, when organizers first came up with the idea of this Women's March on Washington, they applied for a protest permit for 200,000 protesters. As you mentioned, we're looking more like half a million protesters here, and because there are so many people out on city streets and on the National Mall right now, it's not going to be a march to the White House because they can't move, so it's going to be a stationary rally. It's actually uh, incredible to watch the crowds stream onto the mall uh, it's been going on all morning long, and I think this has turned out to be far bigger and far more successful than organizers ever would have imagined, not only here in Washington, but as you mentioned, because this has turned into a, a global movement. Peaceful and peaceable, right, with a message. Absolutely, completely peaceful, unlike a lot of the protests we saw yesterday. The real message here today uh, from a lot of the women and the marchers in general who are here is that they'll be keeping a very close eye on the Trump administration, and if they start to see the repeal of certain values they hold dear, such as reproductive rights, they won't hesitate to speak up. I think they really want to send a message to the new president that while he may have won the election, there are still a lot of people out there who are opposed to him or uh, don't support his agenda. Have you had a chance to uh, speak with or have you taken note of any Canadian women who were there? I understand there are quite a few delegations. There are lots of Canadians here, actually. Uh, you know, the border crossings were apparently very busy. Uh, some women actually being denied entry into Canada, believe it or not, uh, after they told U.S. Border, border officials why they were coming down. That, that's a whole separate issue. But uh, there were bus loads of Canadians coming down here, and the flights into Washington, D.C., and the trains have all been packed as well. What's the mood in Washington today, Jackson, the day after the inauguration of Donald Trump? You know, it's fascinating to see how different the mood is here today compared to yesterday. I mean, yesterday, in theory, should have been the big event, and yet all morning long the streets were deserted, the National Mall really wasn't that busy, and Washington sort of had a ghost ghost town feel to it. And that's certainly not the case today. I mean, the streets have been packed all morning long. Uh, walking the same routes I walked yesterday was a, a very noticeable difference, uh, and there's a lot more energy in the air here today. I think generally, though, the, the speech given by Donald Trump yesterday is still reverberating and people are still trying to make sense of what it means and Donald Trump's words about an America first policy um, are really kind of sinking in and, and people are wondering, is this really a turn inwards and America turning its back on the world? Pretty consistent with what he said during the campaign. It is, and I would actually say his messaging yesterday uh, was almost identical to the speech he gave at the Republican National Convention. We still have Jackson? So we've had a clearly we have an issue with our with our connection with uh, Jackson. Let's can we reconnect with him or does he have to connect with us? Okay, so we'll uh, I expect we'll hear back from Jackson Prosco, the uh, bureau chief, global news bureau chief in Washington. Half a million women in Washington and uh, perhaps a million globally. Jackson is back with us. Uh, the gremlins got us. So we were talking about the uh, the, uh, the the mood in Washington today. Yeah, and I, I would just say that it's a very different feeling here today than it was yesterday for the inauguration. Uh, a lot of 
energy and enthusiasm on the streets and a lot more people. I mean, yesterday felt quite desolate for what should be sort of a big celebratory day. Right. Now, the Democrats and uh, Democratic Party leadership is calling on Americans to resist the Donald Trump administration. I'm kind of trying to trying to come to grips with what that means. What's the message they're sending to politicians? Are they perhaps urging Trump opponents to engage in, in public action? What are you getting from that, Jackson? Well, I think it's just about sending a message, and perhaps it's just through vast numbers of people, uh, that there are people who still hold dear certain values that Donald Trump and his administration may not. And, and the message we're hearing today from many of the marchers is that, for example, if the Trump administration tries to claw back reproductive rights or LGBT rights, um, there is a small army of people who are willing to stand opposed to that. So this is, I mean, this is a huge story today. This The Women's March is huge. Makes me think of... Uh of the anti-Obama march that took place. I think it was a million people in the mall. It was also very quiet. It was, it was peaceable, and that's really what people respect, peaceable marches. Well, ultimately, how long is this going to go on for, and and who are the notables who are going to be speaking? We know Michael Moore is going to be there. Gloria Steinem's there. Who else uh, do you know of? Yeah, Cher, Amy Schumer, uh, the list goes on and on and on. And actually, the, the theme from the people speaking today is it's great that you've all come out today, but if you want this message to continue, you can't let this be a one-time event, that you need to continue to protest and make your voices heard if you felt you're not, if you feel you're not being heard by the Trump administration. Can I broad-base this just a little bit more? Any talk, even in the first hours of a Trump administration, about relations between the U.S. and Canada, even casually about changes or what may or may not be store. No, I mean, all we know is what Trump has sort of alluded to through his speeches so far, which is top priority is uh, renegotiating NAFTA, potentially scrapping the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And uh, at the same time, during his inaugural address yesterday, Trump spoke of standing firm with old allies and making new ones. So you have to think that he's not necessarily going to turn his back on the relationships he has, but at the same time, when he's speaking about an America first policy and ensuring that American interests come first, that's going to reverberate some way, somehow. And you have to think that could well play out in the trade arena. Well, for you, it's going to be interesting to cover this administration going forward, I'm sure. Oh, it's already been a wild ride, Roy. <laughs> Thanks for the time, Jackson. All the best. My pleasure. Jackson Prosco, the uh, Washington Bureau Chief for Global News. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Tony Heller, perhaps best known as a climate change skeptic or human-induced global warming skeptic. Um, his uh, website is realclimatescience.com. As I said earlier, not specifically talking to Tony about that now, although we will bring it up because the climate change page has disappeared from the White House website. Uh, I want to talk to Tony because he's in Washington and find out what he's seen. So, Tony, good to have you with us. Yesterday, where were you? Where did your travels take you? Um, I, I came out from Colorado um, to D.C. I've been out here all week. Right. So where were you? Were you at the inauguration itself? Were you there close enough uh, to see what was going on? No. No, I... Uh, <laughs> So, so yesterday, so um, you know, I have a very different take on what was going on here the last couple of days than the way Jackson described it to you. Um, yesterday, there was a tremendous amount of very positive energy. Um, and you know, Jackson was saying that the, the mall was deserted yesterday. Well, the reason for that was because um, these protest groups went and they essentially clogged up the entrances. You know, they had these security entrances right. because the president was there, and you couldn't get in. 
So I just, Tony, I really want to talk to you about what you saw, and I'm only doing that because today's going to be those one of those days where the clock compresses everything. Um, oh well, that's well, that's what I saw. I, right. I wanted to get in. I wanted to get into the parade in the mall, but you couldn't because there were protesters blocking it. I talked to people yeah. who spent two hours and they were not able to get in. You know, we talk about these people as protesters. In many cases, they were way beyond that. They were rioters. Yeah, you know, I, I did not see any of that. I, I just saw a lot of sort of very negative, nasty people who, who were intentionally co- collecting. You know, they were they were they were X-raying everybody who was coming in to the uh, to the parade area and to the mall, and it was a very slow process. And they put in, you know, they put in like a. 500 or 1,000 people, you know, in line at, at each one of these x-ray booths, you, you literally could not get in. So that was the reason why there were so few people mm-hmm. inside the parade area. I wanted to go in and see the parade, but li- literally it was physically impossible to do that. So a whole bunch of people, uh, thousands and thousands of people were kept out of the area, so they couldn't see the parade, and that's why they went to Washington. Yeah. Yeah, we were, we were not able to get in, but... And it was because of the protesters. They were who kept us out of, um, out of you know, from doing what we wanted to do. But I would say the mood yesterday was very positive. Lots of, you know, people, you couldn't get in, but, you know, all the other areas around. You know, we walked all over from Capitol Building down to George Washington University and Lincoln Memorial. You know, it was extremely positive. And the day before, too, with the concert down at the Lincoln Memorial. So, uh, you know, it was was, uh, um, really a, uh, you know, pretty spectacular, fun day. People were very happy. Everybody was walking around with their Make America Great hats again. Um, But today is a very different story. I I came in, I'm wearing my Make America Great Again um, uh, hat, you know, walking around. The number of nasty, rude, hateful things people have said to me today, that they're sour, they have, very negative, you know, some some extremely obscene, rude signs attacking Trump. The energy is completely different today. Yesterday was very positive. Today is extremely negative. Have um, people been? Have people directly, specifically insulted you because you're wearing the hat? Oh yeah, people called me fascist, pig. I've been called every name in the book just because I'm wearing the hat. Um, it's been a very, it's a very angry, nasty group of people out here. And nobody's smiling, you know, and they have these signs just making very outrageous claims about Trump. And just, you know, I've never seen, I've literally never seen so many nasty people in my life as I've seen down here. How do you respond to that? How do you respond to that? Do you just keep walking? I I don't say anything to them. I'm just, I just wore the hat because I wanted to see what they were going to say to me. So now you know. not, Not down here to pick a fight with, you know, large group of aggressive, nasty people. I just, you know, wanted to see how, what they would say. And I've had dozens of really nasty, you know, remarks made at me um, just because I'm wearing the hat. So are you are you sort of by yourself wearing a hat or are other people wearing... Do you see a lot of those hats today or not? Well, there was one group of women um, in front of the Capitol building, uh, Women for Trump, and they were very smiling and happy and big signs, and, and people were walking by them screaming obscenities at them, um, too. But, so what does, this uh, say, what, does but, this all, what does this all say to you about the mood of your country over the next four years? Well, there, there was so much anti-Trump propaganda in the press, you know, coming from the White House, coming from Hillary. I mean, the country was barraged with 
really, really, even from, you know, within the conservative parts of the Republican Party, you know, the NRO came and did this against Trump issue. And people have been bombarded with this for so long. And I don't think very of them actually know very much about Trump or what he said yesterday. It's just that they've been, um, had this, all this hatred drummed into them for so long. And, um, and you see it, you know, it just, it's just. But do you expect, do you expect things to calm down in the near future or not? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you see, right now they're in the anger and denial stage, right? You know, people, a lot of people walking around with, not my president's time. You know, we're going to resist. You know, but I, I suspect two weeks from now, most of them will just be back to living their normal lives again. <laughs> um, but, you know, like, like I tweeted earlier, you know, there's 175 million American women who are not out protesting today, right? Tony, let me ask you this in the time that we have left. Yeah. The uh, the climate page has been, I've yeah. been told, I didn't go to the White House website, I should have, but I was doing so many other things, but I've heard a number of news reports saying that the climate page or the climate change page has already been removed from the White House website. Um, right. Has it? And uh, and, and what, what significance does that, do you think, suggest? Well, I've been working with the uh, EPA transition team for months. Um, and, you know, they've been working very hard to get rid of all these very destructive, useless regulations about climate and other things which affect the energy industry. So what happened was, you know, the, the Obama administration had, you know, a big page up on the White House website about the climate change initiative and all this stuff. It was immediately taken out. And Trump, at the top of the Trump page now, they've got stuff about American uh, achieving American energy independence about um, we getting rid of the uh, climate of, of Obama's climate initiative. So it's very direct in your face. Right. We're going the opposite direction. Now. Right. We're going to we we want to stop buying oil from countries who promote terrorism. We want to develop I, the attitude. You know, I, I know these people. I know the attitude. Yeah, I have to. I have to we, stop, we Tony. To Tony, I have to stop. Yeah. I have no choice. I have to stop because of the clock. But I thank you so much for for joining us from Washington D.C. Watch that hat, huh? Oh yeah. Well, okay. Thanks. All right, uh, Tony Heller, realclimatescience.com is his website. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred CHML. Uh, just reading in the Washington Post today, and let me just quote, inspired by the Women's March on Washington, more than a million women around the world are expected to hit the streets Saturday, that would be today, of course, to show solidarity with Americans and to promote human rights and gender equality in their own countries. While the march in Washington is expected to draw about 200,000 people, organizers say other marches dotted around the United States, and indeed the world could collectively draw 10 times that figure. Now, we heard earlier from Jackson Prosco, the Washington bureau chief for Global News that it's possibly half a million uh, people in the Women's March in Washington. One of the people there, one of the women there, is Ann Buckma from Hamilton. Ann is a writer, editor, reporter, and uh, she's with us right from the march. Hi, Ann. Hello, Roy. How are you? Good. How are you? And how would you describe what you see around you? Oh Well, Roy, it's absolutely incredible. I'm staring at Capitol Hill right now. Um, unfortunately, because of the huge crowd here, we've had no Wi-Fi, so, um, you know, I, I feel out of touch. But uh, the numbers we're hearing are half a million people 
twice what was anticipated. I can tell you from the hour and a half lineup I had at the porta potty, yeah. there are a lot of people here. That's how you measure the, the size of the crowd, right? The length of the time of the wait at the porta potty. That's what, when you have this many women. Um, I have to tell you, the overriding feeling here is one of celebration and joy. Even though people are, uh, you know, they're calling it a march, not a protest. People are here for issues that they believe in. There is a real air of festivity and fun and joyfulness. Um, it's a, just an incredible place to be right now. So if there's an overarching message, uh, and the organizers have said that it's not a, it shouldn't be defined as an anti-Donald Trump march. But if there's an overarching message, what's the overarching message, Anne? Well, I think one of the really interesting things about this march is that uh, even though it's called a women's march, for one thing, I'm amazed at how many men are here. Uh, I'm here with a large group, and we were sort of looking around trying to figure out the percentage. I would say 30% of the people here are men. Uh, so I wasn't expecting that. That's fantastic to see. Um, there's many people here for many different reasons. Even though it's called a women's march, there are so it's like an umbrella march, really. I mean, people are here... Um, you know, raising awareness about climate change, women's issues, Black Lives Matter, uh, immigrant issues, LGBT uh, rights, uh, reproductive rights. It seems uh, there are many, many issues that people are, uh, you've know, got signs and slogans and chants. It's a real umbrella of folks uh, out here making their voices known. What is it that would have primarily interested in motivated Canadian women to go to Washington and attend? Well, you know, there are so many Canadian women. I traveled on a bus for 12 hours last night, and I think there were about uh, an estimated 600 women on the buses. I've kept track of women from Hamilton. I've got a count of about 75 who have flown out, driven here, or were on the buses. And I think, um, you know, it's an issue of solidarity. I can tell you from the moment we walked onto the National Mall, uh, as Canadians, we have our flags out and we've got our maple leaves showing, and people have been hugging us. Um, they're so thankful that we're here. They're rather amazed, actually, that we are. Um, a couple people said, can we trade uh, Trump for Trudeau? But uh, they just... Oh, yeah, please, let's do that. <laughs> they uh, seem, I don't think so. Uh, they seem sort of baffled that we're here and, and very, you know, very touched by it. So uh, it's been very heartwarming uh, to see that. Yeah, Americans have, a way, Americans have a way of expressing gratitude. I remember when we were... Uh, the first anniversary of 9-11, we went down and broadcast there, and they were also doing the same thing. They were hugging us and thanking us for being there. They often feel isolated. And, and this, this instance... Of, yeah, we have a lot of things that they don't have. Um, you know, parental leave, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of issues. You know, universal health care, things that they are struggling for and that seem a long way away for them, things that we take for granted. So I think they sort of look at us and scratch their heads and wonder why our cultures are so different, even though our borders are, are so close. Um, I'm here with a couple of Hamilton women, one Marianne Daly, a Hamilton Catholic school teacher, and she said, so many have said thank you for coming, uh, but she said that's what good neighbors do. So it's very touching for us to be uh, to be even thanked. You know, uh, that's not what was expected, but uh, but it's been very, very heartwarming. So, Anne, would you say then that there's not a, not a really um, strong or, or, or dominating political sense to this? I think people feel very unified, you know, um, definitely uh, it does fall under the umbrella of a women's march, but as I said, there's so much diversity here. Um, I think people are just uh, standing up and wanting to be counted. People say to me, well, what good does a march do? 
not going to change anything overnight, but a lot of people have said, I've never marched in anything in my life. I've never been an activist. I've never been particularly politically engaged. It seems to be drawing a lot of folks who are not, you know, activist types. So that makes it very interesting. Huge range in ages. I've seen uh, elderly men uh, wearing pussy, pink pussy hats. I've seen, uh, you know, I just saw a mother nursing her little baby girl who had this cute T-shirt on. Um, I can't remember the slogan. I've got to tell you, some of the slogans here are very creative. Um, we shall overcome uh, was one that I thought was rather funny with uh, a caricature of Donald Trump and some orange hair. We shall overcome. Uh, we don't want your tiny hands anywhere near our underpants. So some of them are pretty funny. You're so vain, you probably think this sign is about you. You know, they're all kind of jokey, and uh, uh, there really is a, an air of um, vitality here. And uh, there have been no incidents that I've heard of. We don't see any anti-March uh, protesters or any anger. Uh, I've seen absolutely nothing like that, even though there are half a million people here. So pretty remarkable how smoothly it's all gone. Uh, except for the porta potty issue, I've got no complaints. Well, you know, uh, th- that's the kind of protest that people in a democratic society and in a democratic world have no problems with. If if people stand up and say, "Look, this is what we want to be heard about. This is this is what is bothering us. This is an issue that we think we really need to be able to get out there and have people understand is is of significance, and we want to talk about it." There's never any objection to that. It's the it's the idiots, the the the, the criminal element that we saw yesterday, were setting. Uh, a limousine on fire and, uh, and and throwing rocks at police officers and behaving in the manner that they did. That's where the objection rises. But what what well, what, what you're doing and there's, there's nothing like that going no, on. No, no, I, I get that. Say that even though even though there isn't a great air of celebration, there is a huge underlining uh, concern about rights uh, for many types of right. people being rolled back uh, for women, for racial minorities, for immigrants, for gay people. I mean, I've had people say to me, like, I live in the South and I'm gay and I'm frightened for my life. Uh, so uh, even though this is a sort of a celebratory air, underneath it, these are serious people with serious concerns. No, I understand that they're up there and they, they didn't go to Washington to just uh, stand around and, and be heard. They went there with a message they want, that they want to have, have heard. What's, uh, what's still ahead? What happens for the rest of the day? Well, we, it's a five-kilometer march toward the White House and the Washington Monument, what we are, like I say, no Wi-Fi here, so it's really hard to know exactly what's going on. What we're hearing is that it might be technically canceled because there is such a mass of people already moved toward the White House that we cannot, we are just moving at a snail's crawl right now. So some people are taking alternative routes. Uh, we're on the National Mall right now, uh, there's Constitution Avenue. So they're kind of moving around to try to get toward the White House, but it is just and unintended, you know, double the numbers that they anticipated, so it's going very slowly. Yeah. But it's, it's, I'm enjoying the ride. I'm so happy to be here. Well, and thank you very much for joining us and taking the time to talk to us from, uh, from Washington, from the Women's March. I am very happy. And I just got to tell you, my favorite sign, one guy was holding up a sign that said, I know signs, I make the best signs, they're terrific, everyone agrees. Thanks a lot for your time, man. Okay, Roy. Be careful have, have, and enjoy Bye, the day. Bye-bye. Ann, Ann Buckma joining us from uh, Washington, Hamilton reporter and, uh, and editor and writer. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So Bill O'Reilly of Fox News put together this great clip of mainstream media laughing, joking, Enjoying the moment 
of deriding Donald Trump when he decided to run for president of the United States. All the, we're elite media, so we know everything, characters had a lot to say. I'm going to play a few seconds of it for you, and then we're going to be talking to Jeff Screema in Washington, who's been a Trump supporter since day one. Have a listen. I am officially running for president of the United States. There are no words. How do you even have a straight face right now? There are no words to describe what just happened. <laughs> Ed Rendell, do you have any doubt that this is anything more than a carnival show? And you watched that speech today, we all laugh about it, and I'm sitting here laughing out loud, you know, yep. you know, for, for the entire, you know, front part of the show here as we're talking about it. I mean, it was a rambling, a rambling mess of a speech. That said, it was very entertaining. I was howling, howling. He's got gumudgeons of money, he's got a lot of recognition, and he just became the 12th presidential candidate for the Republican Party. Uh, is it... Typical Donald Trump fashion, or is it hilarity run amok? This morning, some Republicans say they're worried Trump will turn the campaign into a circus. Party leaders worry Trump's presence will turn the primary into a joke. America's largest Latino civil rights organization called Trump an exceedingly silly man. Donald Trump is a fool. Hell froze over, and now we're stuck in the ice with Donald Trump. Chuck, you and I have seen this public dance from Trump yes. before. I guess the question is, is this candidacy for real? Will it be significant? It's like, I can't, I can't tell if this is politics or if this is just PR from a celebrity. For the National Press Corps and other elites, Donald Trump's campaign is a pure vanity exercise and a target ripe for outright mockery or low-level derision. So there's a little bit of it. Bill O'Reilly, if you uh, follow Bill O'Reilly on Twitter, you can find that. Thanks, Bill, for putting that together from Fox News. So the, the, uh, the, the talking heads, the uh, know-it-alls, the elite media in the United States, having a hell of a laugh at the, uh, at the idea of Donald Trump becoming president. So yesterday, as I said earlier in the first hour of the show, I'm watching the parade, the inauguration parade, and, and I'm, I'm seeing these big black limousines. I see the first one with the seal of the president of the United States on the door. I'm thinking, who's in there? Who could be in there? Because all of these media stars in the U.S. can't possibly be wrong. It can't be Donald Trump who's in that car, can it? Jeff Screema is the former mayor of Waukesha, Wisconsin. He's a longtime Donald Trump supporter. He was a, Je Jeff, were you at the inauguration yesterday? I was. And you had a seat? You, had, you were on the front row, were you? I, I, was, I was right towards the front. Wow. Yes. So Waukesha is the ninth largest community in the state of Wisconsin. You've been a supporter of Donald Trump since day one. When you hear those American talking heads deriding Donald Trump running for president, what are you thinking today? Well, they've just completely discredited themselves. And um, I think they're being shown uh, for what they are, and that is that they are biased uh, newscasters and biased commentators, um, which is okay. It's okay for them to have their opinion. Um, but they shouldn't come off as, as being objective when uh, that's clearly not the case. Yeah. Uh, you know about fighting campaigns. You know about winning campaigns, and you know about losing campaigns. So ultimately, when you look back, why did Donald Trump become president of the United States? What carried it for him? Uh, he just never gave up. Um, he was very uh, bold. Um, he would call people out uh, that attacked him. He would fight back. Um, he would point out the hypocrisy uh, in the press, even at his own events, and people were, were shocked 
and many people were pleasantly surprised. So he he made it to the end because of uh, his strong will, and that's what that's what people want in the White House. Now, what should we expect going forward? Now, we heard the speech, and my callers have sat, and I've given them the option to to, uh, to say the speech was great or it was terrible or somewhere, or somewhere in between. Everyone but one caller said it was a great speech or an excellent speech or a timely speech. One caller said it was business as usual with, with politicians. Um, what should we expect from Donald Trump going forward now? Well, I, I would expect him to actually carry out um, what he's the themes that he's been talking about all along and the themes that he mentioned in his speech. Um, he's, you know, very much for uh, sort of American protectionism. Uh, he's for the common people. Um, he is not interested in uh, nation building around the world. He wants other countries to um, you know, take care of their own affairs. Um, he's also uh, against uh, terrorism. Um, and he wants to improve our economy. He wants to bring bring jobs uh, back to America and, and, and increase the, uh, the productivity here. Let me ask you this about your country. It seems to an observer from up north that you are a society that is fractured. You're fractured along ethnic lines. You're fractured along racial lines. You're fractured along political lines. And you're, you're fractured along language lines. First of all, is that correct? And how do you change that? Can Donald Trump mend some, most, or all of the fractures, do you think? If there are fractures. Yeah, well, there there, there clearly are um, fractures. And uh, the, what what divides people in America is also what uh, makes, makes America a very unique place. We're a country of diversity, and we've managed to stay together uh, for many, many years. And hopefully that will continue uh, to be the case. Uh, right. But, yeah, there, there's no doubt that uh, there are people with strong opinions and uh, various backgrounds making their opinions known um, in this country all over the place. What you have in the White House now is a man who also has very strong opinions, is not shy to express them, and probably won't be shy to put into practice what he says he's going to put into practice. Jeff, we're going to stay in touch with you, and I'm sure that over the over the, over the the time of the uh, of the, the tenure of uh, the, the president, we'll have plenty of opportunity to speak. Thanks for sharing the time with us today. Sounds great. Thank you. All the best. Jeff Screema, former mayor of Waukesha, Wisconsin, longtime Donald Trump supporter and uh, resident of Washington, D.C. We're back in a minute. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I know we just started 2017, and most of the political focus has been on the United States and will remain on the U.S. for some time. However, there is starting to be some movement in this country as well, with the conservatives looking for a leader, and they'll have their vote coming up in a matter of months for the leadership. Was it 14? Was it 14? I think it's 14 candidates at the moment. Anyway, it's way too many. Way too many. It's a totally unwieldy number. Uh, but there are 14, I think it is, candidates for the conservative leadership. The NDP is going to go through the process of, uh, of selecting a leader. And Mr. Trudeau, our prime minister, is wandering the country now, trying to connect with Canadians and uh, not, well, not doing as well as I think he expected to. So enter the race for the conservative leadership, Kevin O'Leary, the Dragon's Den and Shark Tank reality series star. And he wants to be prime minister of Canada. I had an opportunity to speak with Mr. O'Leary yesterday. And I asked him some questions about what he would do. This was not an Inquisition uh, interview. This was a fact-finding interview about what he would do if he became prime minister of the country. 
what, once you've got, got it on record, then you can use it as reference. So I want you to listen to parts one and part two of the interview with Kevin O'Leary, who wants to be the prime minister of this country. Here's how it went. Mr. O'Leary, why you for CPC leader and ultimately Prime Minister of Canada? Why not a former Harper Conservative government cabinet minister with experience in Ottawa? I think we're seeing a phenomenon emerge, not just in Canada, but globally. Certainly in the U.S., we saw it in Britain on the Brexit movement. People are tired of politicians. They, they want more honesty, a direct conversation with their leader. But above all, they want some executional excellence. And so few politicians have ever run a business and ever grown an economy, getting their hands dirty and doing deals. And I think that same tone is coming into the Canadian psyche. I I think we're frustrated watching Trudeau's incompetence and watching these mistakes being made over and over again, but mostly watching the economy grind to a halt. 0.7% GDP growth is alarming for Canada because we can't support education, the social net we have a contract with people with, and healthcare, it just you saw the squabbling last week on transfer payments. That's because there is no money, and so we we need to get the economy back. And in order to do that, and this is a remarkable situation. I mean, you know, the way I look at things right now, what's going to happen here is actually Justin Trudeau is going to elect Kevin O'Leary. He just has to keep doing what he's doing, because he really made a huge mistake and missed a massive opportunity. When Trump was elected, a surprise to everybody around the world, he should have used that as an excuse to reverse all of these policies that he's put in place on carbon, on taxation, on regulation, because we have to compete in North America, and now we're in a woefully uncompetitive situation. But he didn't do that because he doesn't understand. And so now we find ourselves in deep trouble because you would not put a new car plant in southern Ontario. You'd pay 30% less, just 17% 17 miles south of the border. You're not going to invest in oil and gas in Alberta. You'll do it in Texas, where they've stripped away regulation. There's no carbon tax. You know, it's amazing to me that Trudeau doesn't understand that, which tells me he actually doesn't know what he's doing. That's really what's going on. Certainly something that I've heard from my listeners for some considerable period of time, and we've known about this movement, the populist movement. We've heard it on talk radio for at least three to four years. Now it's come to full bloom, if you will, and uh, as early as February of last year, there was a tremendous amount of support for Donald Trump from my callers across Canada. That didn't. That never waned. It just got stronger and stronger. And today, if you ask people whether it was appropriate, my callers ask them if Donald Trump is the perfect person for president of the United States. They'll almost invariably say yes. But we do have the reality of Justin Trudeau as prime minister. We have the reality of Rachel Notley as the premier of Alberta. We have the reality of Kathleen Wynne as premier of Ontario. We've heard we've heard from our callers who are struggling, struggling just to make ends meet in Ontario because of the massive electricity bills. We've already heard from people in Alberta who are suffering because of the carbon tax. What do you say, let's break this down into two provinces. Let's start with Alberta. What do you say to the voter in Alberta? How does a Kevin O'Leary government, a Kevin O'Leary as prime minister, improve the reality that exists on the ground now under the Notley government? You know, unfortunately, Notley doesn't work for me. I would have fired her a long time ago. I'm on the record on that a year and a half ago after her appearance in New York. I was stunned at how incompetent she was. And that was the first time I ever heard anything out of her mouth. And it's been a disaster ever since then. My promise to the people of Alberta is the Calgary, that, that, and in, you know, in Calgary, where I really see it manifest itself with just unemployment skyrocketing, the cavalry is coming. 
I'm going to go to Ottawa, reverse everything Trudeau did, everything, everything, and then I'm going to do what's right. We're going to have to figure out what, and we don't know yet, tax rates should be, because when Trump sets his in the next 90 days, we have to be competitive. Carbon taxation, gone everywhere. I will remove it everywhere. If a province wants to put on carbon tax, I'll reduce the transfer payments by that amount. I am going to make sure they behave properly. I don't want any carbon tax in Canada. There's other ways to deal with emissions. But everything Trudeau did, I'll reverse. You will forget his name 100 days after I arrive in Ottawa. So the same formula would apply to Ontario then with Kathleen Wynne, who has a cap-and-trade agreement. Kathleen Wynne, I've worked, and you know this, very hard to make sure she has the least popularity of any former premier. She's down to about 14%. I'm hoping to get her down to 5 I'm shining the light of transparency on every move she makes. I've sent open letters to the people there. It's outrageous what she's done. She is such a poor leader, but I don't think she's going to survive another mandate. So I'm not worried about her. I'm unfortunately not going to get a chance to help her find her new career. She's going to get that the next election in about 24 months. If the Ontario people were to elect a Liberal government again, and remember Patrick Brown, the conservative, progressive Conservative Party leader, has talked and spoken in favor of a carbon tax, if the Ontario people re-elect the Liberals, you're going to have to deal with the fact of a cap-and-trade agreement between Ontario, Quebec, and the state of California. What do you do about that? Cap-and-trade doesn't work. Here's why. When you have a very rich, fat company with lots of small tax that has a low-cost capital because they have a huge balance sheet, they never have to innovate. They never have to stop polluting. They simply buy credits. What a stupid system. I can't believe that. We have to actually implement something that was put in 40 years ago. The government went to the auto industry and said, we want a slow reduction of emissions over the next 30 years. You're going to meet those targets or be brutally fined. We saw what happened with Volkswagen. And we'll leave the money on your balance sheet so you can innovate, create jobs, create new technologies so that we can achieve our targets. Cap and trade is a tax grab. It's another way that Kathleen Wynne dreamed up sitting under a desk with a 60-watt bulb. All she does is try to figure out how to tax her people into oblivion. And look at what's happened to the economy. She's erased hundreds of thousands of jobs in the manufacturing space because we're so uncompetitive. There will be no carbon taxes in Canada when I'm, when I'm prime minister. I will find ways to make the provinces behave properly. So you have on the other side of the spectrum, you have Justin Trudeau, who threatens the provinces that if they don't begin a carbon taxation scheme, a program by 2018, he'll force it on them. I spent a lot of time on the air with the Premier of Saskatchewan, Brad Wall, and recently Mr. Wall told us that uh, the day after Justin Trudeau announced in Parliament, arbitrarily, while environment ministers eventually were meeting to talk about a carbon tax, Trudeau got up in Parliament and arbitrarily announced there would be one. Mr. Wall told me the day after he spoke with Justin Trudeau, one-on-one conversation, and one of the questions Brad Wall asked Justin Trudeau was, have you conducted any kind of economic impact assessment of your carbon tax? The answer was no. Nevertheless, you have 10, I'm sorry, eight provinces that have signed on to Trudeau's, or capitulated to Trudeau's carbon tax dictum or dictate. Do, how do you, I mean, how do you uh, convince all those provinces to go on side with you? You've already got Brad Lowe. 
there'll only be 12 months of a, uh, a carbon tax because it implements in 18, I'll take over in 2019 and I'll erase all that. It's very easy to compel them. They don't want to do this. They know it makes their province uncompetitive in the North American market. Or they will by 2019. I know, but I'll, don't worry, I'll get there and I'll reverse everything. I, I will make sure that they, they're not under that covenant anymore because what I have to do is make the policies of, the, of our country competitive globally. That'll take a while, but I'll do it. And then I will crisscross the world, as I do every day as an an international investor, and tell Shanghai, Hong Kong, New York, Zurich, Geneva, London, Canada is open for business. That's what's happened, where it's closed for business. You know, the job of government is very simple. You have to set an environment that's competitive, but you don't create any jobs in government. You set the environment, the tonality, the candor, the candace. You want people to understand the land is a place where you can invest your money. Anywhere, anybody. If you want to come to Canada, start a family, start a business, it should be a place where you want to do that. And then you let that flower bloom. Right now, you can't, you can't grow a weed in Canada. Trudeau has poisoned the soil everywhere with stupid policies, and it's hurt us badly. Now, he didn't use the opportunity of the Trump election to say, oh my goodness, everything's changed now. I'll pivot. I'll erase these policies because he doesn't understand. He doesn't understand at all. This is the gravest concern I have. I look at him now and I realize, because I had optimism when he first came in, I realize now he doesn't know what he's doing. And just look at his caucus. That is a study in mediocrity. I mean, he talked about diversity, that being the only thing he wanted. What about executional excellence? What about the ability to do a job? Show me those resumes. It's been a disaster. He's moving these mediocre operators on a mediocre chessboard back and forth. It's disgusting. It's hurting our country. That's the kind of thing I'm going to clean up. I wouldn't have hired any of those people. I'm going to fire all of them when I get there. You have to put, you know, the definition of great leadership is finding great people and asking them to do extraordinary things. That's what I've done all my life. That's what the Canadian people want. They're tired of this crap. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. What they don't want is a prime minister who stands up and says Canada has no core identity or no common denominator and then refers to Canada in a New York Times opinion piece or interview as Canada being the first post-nation state. People are proud of this country. People want to be proud of Canada. And, Mr. O'Leary, many of them have latched on to one of your opponents, Kelly Leach, who says that she would question newcomers to this country on Canadian values. That has also received a lot of pushback. What's your view of that? You know, I don't criticize any of my fellow uh, conservative candidates. My plan is very simple. I do not have a monopoly on great ideas. I listen. I'm going to take the best of theirs to Ottawa on May 27th. It's that simple. There's going to be a decision made then when the members of the Conservative Party decide who they should send to Ottawa for the exorcism of Justin Trudeau in 2019. You have to pick someone that can win. I can't do any of this unless I win a majority mandate. And I've told the caucus privately, and I'll tell it to you publicly now, if I don't deliver a majority mandate in 2019, they can fire me. I'm I'm in this to win, but I'm also in it to win for the Canadian people. I've never had a job in my life where I've worked for somebody. This is the first time ever I'm being employed by the Canadian taxpayer. And I look at it this way. You know, you think about the challenges we've got right now and, and, and everything that has to be done. 
I've got to attract immensely talented people into my caucus, particularly in trade and finance, and I'm going to do that. Build a team that Canada's going to be proud of, and then implement these policies as fast as I can. My job now, in the interim, between now and 2019, so that everybody understands this, is to shine the light of transparency on everything Trudeau does, to examine every one of his policies. Remember, I can read a balance sheet and an income statement. I will assess, assess the, the risk of everything he's doing and try to get him to do as little as possible until I get there because it just makes my work so much harder. And I've already said to him, do not paint 24 Sussex Drive until my wife sees the colors. <laughs> okay, this story has made headlines in the last couple of days. Arlene Dickinson wrote an uncomplimentary piece about you for CBC, that you're only in it for Kevin O'Leary, and uh, that it's all about Kevin O'Leary. Brett Wilson, also Dragon's Den, says in retort, if you will, that you have a big heart and you're a good man. What do Canadians need to know about Kevin O'Leary, the man? What do we need to know about you? You know, the reason I jumped into this race is... And it's really the straw that broke the camel's back. When I read that report that we are going to run deficits for the next 38 years and end up $1.5 trillion in debt, I immediately thought of my own kids, 20 and 23. There is no chance in hell I'm going to let Justin Trudeau do that to my kids. Zero probability. Now, that is not something we can allow to happen because we're only... 36 million people. I mean, we would be so in debt that the future for our kids, I mean, look at the blue sky I had when I was growing up. I want my kids to have the same opportunities. That's the motivation in what drives me. Why do we have to have so much bounty wealth in this country in terms of natural resources, unlimited potential, and be so poorly managed? Why? Where is it written on my passport or in the Constitution of Canada that I have to settle for mediocrity, stupid policies, and just incompetence? I'm done with it. I'm pissed. And that's why I'm doing this. You know, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I've been saying for years on the air, and I've received no pushback from callers, given the size of this country, given our huge natural resources base, which apparently means nothing to Mr. Trudeau and his followers, Given everything that we have that's available to us, why is this country even a dollar in debt? We're a dollar in debt. We're going to be $1.5 trillion in debt, according to federal estimates, if this current path continues. We're going to be that much in debt because of political incompetence. And that, Mr. O'Leary, is why people want to know not only who will be sitting in the prime minister's chair, but what are you going to do? The whole issue here is in many ways the same thing for Canadians as it was for Americans. We're fed up. We're tired. We're just so weary of political leaders who say one thing, do another, and take care of themselves and their friends, that we want somebody who is different. You know, I've never been a politician. I don't owe anybody anything. I don't owe anybody any money. Voters will ultimately decide. They'll believe me or not. They'll give me the mandate or they won't. But I only have one objective. I'm going to go to Ottawa in 2019. I'm going to hire a very strong team of men and women to dig this country out of the hole it's in. And I'm going to make them very proud of their country. I want them to feel the way they did when they watched Canada win the hockey game at the Olympics. I want the same feeling back for the country. So there's part two 
of the three-part interview with Kevin O'Leary, who wants to be the prime minister of this country. Tomorrow, we'll play part three, along with one or two, and then I'll ask you whether you've heard sufficient from Kevin O'Leary and commitments that he's made on the air to us to make you at least consider him as prime minister, and does it make him the front-runner, as far as you're concerned, for the leadership of the Conservative Party. If I could give Mr. O'Leary one piece of advice, it would be this. Announce now that you will do what Donald Trump is doing, and that is you will work without a salary as prime minister. That, I think, would create an instant pressure on your opposition for the leadership of the CPC. Not CBC, the CPC. Just a thought. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. It's time for the beauties, for Catherine Swift, most powerful woman in Canada. <laughs> you always laugh when I say that. That is a that is a that is a compliment, and it's a true statement. Well, I'm not. It is. <laughs> and yeah. it was well, I, I wish, but let's not fool ourselves here. If that were the case, things would be a lot better in this country. <laughs> the most, <Right> on. <laughs> the most powerful woman in the world is, or Canada anyway is Catherine Swift. Now, Linda Leatherdale is the vice president of Cambria, Canada. She's a former money editor of the Toronto Star. She's an independent business journalist, and she's never shy with an opinion. And she has her own power base. Hi, Linda. Hello, Roy. Toronto Sun, I think you said Toronto Star. Did I? Oh, my goodness, Roy. Oh, oh my, my God. God. Yeah. I'm going to oh the my. I have a lobotomy for that. A what? A lobotomy. Yeah. I'd rather have a bottle. What, what's that old line? I'd rather have a, a bottle a in front bottle of me. In front of me than a frontal lobotomy. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> anyway, hello, Roy. <laughs> hello, Linda. Toronto Sun. Michelle Simpson, former Liberal Member of Parliament and former parliamentary seatmate to the aforementioned Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada. She's in California. Hi, Michelle. Hello, Roy. So, Michelle, I'm going to start with you. We'll talk about Trump, of course, and the. And, and, and the reaction to the fact that he's now the president of the United States. California is the state which contains, I think, the majority of members of Congress who decided they weren't going to attend the inauguration, dummies, uh, disrespectful of, a, of, 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 of true democracy and a peaceful uh, changeover of government. But what's the attitude in California? Are they talking secession? Is, is Jerry Brown uh, in need of uh, the governor of California is in need of blood pressure pills. What's going on in California with with Donald Trump now officially president? No, well, it, truly, I think it was the, you know a protest in terms of Trump taking over, and these guys have to get a grip. And you know, in reading the paper down here, the elected representatives that boycotted the uh, inauguration from California. Are almost it's almost unanimous that what they did was juvenile. Good, and I I do agree with that. Like it's over, it, it it's over. Uh, let's you know uh, move on, and they're just not willing to. Yeah, these are the people who, when you say move on, they say dot org. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you know. The, the mood is, is not a good one. That said, I, I didn't really find Donald Trump's inauguration speech a good one at all. 
Well, it, to me, it was what he had to give. It's what he should have given. Somebody said to me earlier today, uh, don't you think it should have been maybe a little more conciliatory, more of an olive branch? And I said, absolutely not. This is what he promised. This was his speech. And if I was, the, if I was in Donald Trump's shoes, I wouldn't have changed a word of that. However, let's find out what Linda Leatherdale, uh, how you assess the, the, the ascendance of Donald Trump to the office of president of the United States and the speech that he gave Linda. Well, Roy, I sat and watched the whole thing, and I got to tell you, I I was blown away by his speech. I, like, I thought, wow, he stuck to what he said he was going to do. He talked about bringing, you know, um, the middle class fighting back for the little guy, which resonates with me so much, Roy. And um, I found it interesting that the camera sort of zoomed into uh, Barack Obama as he said, you know, Washington. There seems to have been globalization made a lot of people very rich, but it certainly did not help the hardworking, tax-paying families of America. No. And I found that really interesting. i got to tell you, there were people around me who totally disagreed with me, Roy, and they still think he's the evil, evil. But I came away, I had goosebumps. I really enjoyed his speech, I have to say that. Now to the most powerful woman in Canada... <laughs> Um, well, I think you nailed it, Roy, a few minutes ago. You were saying his speech was very consistent with his campaign. And anyone that expected him to be conciliatory or change his tune or, you know, whatever, um, that would have been inconsistent with his approach throughout this entire campaign. He is the anti-establishment, you know, the, the anti-elite, the anti, even though he's definitely an elitist mm-hmm. personally. So uh, time will tell, though. I, I mean, the whole question is, and I think of this from an economic standpoint, naturally, because that's my background, is, boy, he's got a real tall order here in terms yep. of delivering. Yep. Uh, you know, to say, oh, I'm going to bring jobs back, well, easy to say, tough to do. Let's face it, you know, that you're not going to change the world, and certainly not in four years. So that, to me, you know, that, that's what I'll be really focusing in on in the next little while, is, is what is he going to put in place to even... In, in a small way, fulfill the many grandiose, you know, very, very large promises that he has made to the American people. You know, when, 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 he, when, he moved, when, when he started to move from Queens, I think it was, to Manhattan, the, the word was among Manhattan developers, we're not, first of all, not going to let this punk into Manhattan. You know, this is, this is our territory. This is, this is us. We're the big game. We're the big boys. This guy's not coming into that's here. Not, yeah, that, that's a good point. And not only that, when he bought that Mar-a-Lago or however you pronounce it, resort and everything, it kept Jewish people out and so on. And, and that was Palm Beach, of course, the, you know, la-di-da of the la-di-da. And, um, and, he's, and he thumbed his nose at them and said, no, no, I, I'm going to let all these people into my place. No yep. problem. Yeah. Yep. And when, when they told him, you can't get into Manhattan, he said, watch me. <laughs> and and who's who's the dominant developer in Manhattan? Donald Trump. This guy has business acumen, business sense. There are people who rip into him uh, because they've a they've heard a rumor, or b they don't like him, or c maybe he's he's pissed off some people. Pardon me, uh, around the world or, or in, in 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 his business dealings. I'm sure he's done that. If you're a multi-billionaire, that's going to happen. Uh, it's it's unavoidable. It's inescapable. I think he has some skills that others may not, and where I think he's, he succeeds beyond Barack Obama, beyond George Bush, beyond Bill Clinton, he has a drive and a determination to win, and you're not going to beat him. 
Well, once again, time will tell. Time will tell. But there's no question there has been a consistent theme. And again, yep. this came out in his in his inauguration speech, which was a very unconventional one. If you look back at you know the many many inaugural speeches, it, it was very different, and right. it was it was uh, in a way revolutionary. And 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 Michelle, he he took on. The Bushes, he took on the Clintons, he took on the Obamas who were sitting be- behind him. He didn't leave anybody out. The GOP didn't get a free ride in that speech. No, no, they didn't. And he he took on every politician. He, you know, he basically said, you guys have done nothing. Yeah. And I don't, I think that's a blanket statement that was profoundly unfair to, you know, a lot of the past presidents. Um, because let's not forget, he became a billionaire uh, and cost some people their jobs when his business enterprises went bankrupt. And it goes down the food chain and takes other companies with it. So, you know, he isn't, he isn't sort of the saint. No, I understand That's that, true. but if you're, if you're going to invest in a company yeah. and the company goes bankrupt... It was your decision to make the investment, and if you go bankrupt along the way, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. No, well, I don't know too no, many business know, people. I'm, I'm talking about vendors, yeah. you know, yeah. and people that supplied these businesses. And when he shut them down, they basically were put out of business. Well, well, your point is well taken. Was that he was critical that. of Republicans, too. What's that? Yeah. I'm sorry? I, I'm sorry. I, he was very critical of, of Republicans in the past as well. Yes, he was. He was more. No, he was. No, it was. It was for everybody. Until <laughs> until the last year, he was more critical of Republicans than Democrats. He arguably was a yeah. Democrat until he ran for the Republican nomination. And Republicans were very critical of him too. <laughs> yeah. And, and well, I exactly to Michelle's point, he did show for this bankrupt company out of Texas that was selling some high tech phones. People with a multi level marketing thing. They were having, Americans were having to pay 500 bucks just to have the privilege of selling them. He was flogging it on his TV show as his company was filing for bankruptcy. I have concerns with those kinds of things. So I just want to put that out there. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.